Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. So Claudine, what are we tackling today? Well, Chuck, you're back from leave for a start, which I'm very pleased about. Did you have a good break? I did. Thank you very much. And congratulations on a fantastic Hydrogen Energy podcast. I enjoyed listening to that, even at a distance from my workstation. I'm glad you managed to listen to it, Chuck, but we did miss you. And we're so glad that you're back. And today we're going to be discussing Cuba. Claudine, Cuba's had a change in leadership, but it's a slightly different one this time, a little bit more significant than usual. No? That's right, Chuck. On the 19th of April, Raul Castro brother of former Cuban president Fidel Castro, stepped down as first secretary of the ruling Communist Party of Cuba, handing the position over to President Miguel Diaz-Canel. While the direct impact of the COVID pandemic on the country's health has been minor, the economic impact has been severe, making an already precarious situation even more so. So it's a real moment of generational change at a delicate time. I used to live in South Florida for a number of years. And and for a few of those years, I actually lived on Miami Beach. And in that part of the world, the political and the cultural and certainly the culinary influence of Cuba is felt very distinctly. And it's an outsized sort of influence because the Cuban-American population plays a critical role in Florida politics. And whoever plays a critical role in Florida politics also plays a critical role in U.S. politics. Claudine, we have with us today Alan Zamayoa. Alan is an associate analyst based in our Mexico City office. And Alan has posted an article to our website taking a fairly in-depth look into the Cuba transition. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Claudine. Great to be on the podcast. Alan, we're so glad to have you with us and to bring you into this conversation as the resident Cuba expert. So let's get straight into the discussion then. There's a lot we want to cover with you today. Beyond Diaz-Canel, the new president, not being a Castro, what does this change of leadership mean for Cuba? Well, first of all, this is a generational change. Instead of being a member of the old guard or the people that fought the revolution, Diaz-Canel is perceived to be a son of the revolution. He was born in 1960, so once the Castros were already in power. This change of generation means that now the the leadership of the PCC is run by loyalists, but they will have to build their own power base and they will have to earn some legitimacy. Contrary to the Castros, who consolidated their legitimacy after winning the 1959 revolution. Another of the differences is that Previously, Raúl was the natural successor of Fidel. In this time, Díaz-Canel was handpicked by Raúl. This means that despite the fact he will be the first secretary of the PCC, the influx of Raúl in some issues of the country will still be something to, to have in mind. Likewise, previously, the Castro brothers had the control of the politics, of economics and military. Díaz-Canel only has political control, but as I mentioned before, he will have to to build this power base. 
the Castro family will remain in control of the economic and military power in Cuba. This might bring some clashes with Diaz-Canel going forward. Now, to consolidate his legitimacy, Diaz-Canel will have to fix the economy. However, he is at a crossroads right now because on one side, he's trying to boost the economy and development, but on the other hand, he has to ensure the continuation of the ideology of the PCC and a single party regime. So Alan, just on that topic, if I'm not mistaken, and, and, and hopefully we'll hear from listeners if I am, but if I'm not mistaken, Cuba is the sole single party communist state in the Western hemisphere. Is that right? That's correct, Chuck. And when you say PCC, you're talking about the Communist Party of Cuba. Right. So I don't think there's any denying anyone who's seen a a photograph even of Cuba understands that the country is in a difficult economic situation. And in the piece on the website, you emphasize the complexities of the reform effort. Can you break these down a little bit? for us. Tell us what the main issues are facing Cuba's economy just right now. The country is in its worst recession in 30 years. Last year, GDP dropped by 11%. There's a lack of food and goods because around 80% of these are imported. However, the devaluation of the Cuban peso as a result of the currency unification in January has made goods more expensive and less available. Likewise, the impact of the pandemic and the U.S. sanctions in the country are more severe over the last year, and the implementation of the economic reforms by the government of President Díaz-Canel has been speed up because of reality rather than because of willingness. Well, what's the impact of COVID been in Cuba, and how, how is it being managed? Well, there's an internal and an external impact. First, the internal impact is that one of the main sources of income for Cuba is tourism. However, the country closed its borders in March 2020 in an attempt to contain the spread of the pandemic. This had an impact on the level of cases or the number of cases recorded in the country, but it also shrank the economic activity of the country. On the external factor, Cuba also relies heavily in remittances. However, because of recent sanctions against financial companies sending remittances to Cuba and the impact of the pandemic in the Cuban diaspora, particularly in the U.S., have reduced the amount of remittances sent to the country over the last year. Another source of income for Cuba is sending medical crews abroad They had sent some during the pandemic. However, there have been some concerns about human rights violations regarding these medical crews. So they've been stopped by now. I think Cuba is one of the countries developing its own vaccine. Is that true, Alan? Is Cuba working on its own COVID-19 vaccine? Cuba is one of the few countries in Latin America that's had a well-developed COVID-19 vaccine program. As of now... There are two vaccines that are in phase three clinical trials. These are Soberana 02 and Abdala vaccine. These have been tested already in Cuba. The Soberana 2 vaccine is being tested currently in Iran. 
Now the government is betting on these vaccines to flatten the curve of the pandemic. They are so, so secure and so, so confident about the success of these vaccines that they haven't even signed up for World Health Organization programs such as COVAX. The idea of the government is to have the vaccine ready for summer, open up the country for foreign visitors and offer them the chance to get vaccinated with this Cuban-made vaccine as part of their holidays in the island. And a great source of prestige if it works as well, I suppose. Yeah, it will be a success for, for the government. In stories of economic reform and success in communist countries, does anyone mention Vietnam and Cuba in the same breath? And is there anything that Cuba takes from the Vietnam lesson or anything that Cuba can't take from the Vietnam lesson? Vietnam's been on the radar of the Cuban governments and analysts because of its success while opening the market. However, the implementation of a Vietnam-like policy or, or opening is likely to be tricky because, uh, first of all, because of the sanctions. Over the last years, sanction has had increased against Cuba and against the biggest Cuban enterprises, which are controlled by the government or the military. The fact that Cuba was designated as state sponsor of terrorism in last January makes it difficult for these companies run by the military to join or to, to get involved with, with private companies from other, other areas of the world. Another difference, Chuck, would be that manufacturing in Cuba is not one of the main sectors of the economy. It relies more on tourism, as I, as I said before, on health and health services and in agriculture. So it will be tricky to implement this shift towards a manufacturing-based economy, particularly because of the economic reforms at the import of supplies. It's proven very, very expensive at the moment. And the only entity that has the ability or the, the right to import is the Cuban state. So, Alan, let's take a second then on the, on the sanctions and put that in the context of what business opportunities in Cuba mean for international investors? Well, despite the, the sanctions, the Cuban government has been trying to allure foreign investors. Last February, there was a summit for Australian companies, particularly those involved in mining and in oil and gas sector. Last month, there were a couple of meetings with officials from Spain and Denmark trying to, to diversify the Cuban economy. However, the scrutiny of the U.S. is likely to impact the potential arrival of investments in the country. Likewise, the fact that most of the, of the medium and big companies are controlled by the government and that foreign companies require to form a public-private partnership in order to operate in Cuba will limit the arrival of new investments. However, as we've seen in previous years, this hasn't been an insurmountable obstacle for businesses trying and willing to successfully do businesses in Cuba. Alan, you mentioned that Diaz-Canel has very different sources of legitimacy and power to the Castros. How do the people on the street, how do Cubans, ordinary Cubans, view him? 
You've also mentioned the fact that there are shortages of goods and price rises. Tell us about how popular he is and about whether there's any danger of, of unrest erupting as a result of the economic difficulties that people are facing. He's been a sort of unknown for most Cubans until recent. He's a very discreet politician. He is not a member of the military. The previous positions he held were not that shiny positions, if I can say. However, over the last two years, since he was appointed president, three years, sorry, he has a good acceptance in the Cuban population. However, the fact that his legitimacy is relying on the potential success of the economy is likely to change this positive outlook or perception of Diaz-Canel because of all these devaluation and inflation rates, access to goods, medicines is becoming trickier in Cuba. Now, there's this sentiment in, in most of the island residents that things are scarce and this is unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. However, demonstrations and bouts of civil unrest are and will continue to be very limited. Let's bring to the table the fact that the Cuban regime is one of the finest repression machines in the world. It has been training and updating for six decades. So the machinery is still well, well oiled. Now, there's something interesting here because the broader population is starting to feel discontent towards the government because of the economic situation. But at the same time, since mobile internet arrived into the island or mobile internet access arrived into the island in 2018, there have been some other ways of protest in Cuba. For example, over the last three years, the dissidents, as they are called in the island, have been changing from political views into other areas, like demanding freedom of speech and even demanding the government to let artists in the island freely display their, their records or their paintings or these type of things. So we're seeing a transition from the old guard, as we can say, this content towards this Marxism theory to other types of civil unrest, not really related to politics, but still related to the actions carried out by the regime. Over the next months and, and years, it's likely that protests will be carried out digitally throughout social media because the machinery of the, of the Cuban government is unable to track and to control all these new technologies. And likewise, because the fact that these contents are being expressed in social media, in websites where people from other countries can also have access to this information, will give it a, a bigger audience. And I guess Cubans are, are looking elsewhere in the world and maybe getting inspiration from activists and protest movements in other countries. Yeah, that, that could also play a factor with all these new technologies that are getting in and that are getting stronger in, in Cuba. So definitely. Alan, readers of your article on the website are going to see some of your thoughts about bilateral relations between the U.S. and Cuba and some of your thinking about the role that Cuba will play in the broader sort of Americas region in the coming couple of years. Tell us what your forecasts are there. Things are going to get better? Things are going to get worse? 
Cuba has always relied on other countries to operate. It was the USSR. More recently, it was Venezuela. However, the situation in Venezuela is not optimal. And the situation in Venezuela is also challenging other allies from, from the Cuban regime, such as Nicaragua and Bolivia. They are also having a difficult year because of internal grievances and because of the pandemic. This can be an opportunity for the new administration in Washington to reapproach Latin America. However, this is also an opportunity for other countries like China and Russia to increase their influence in the region. The administration of President Biden so far has made it really clear that a change in the policy towards Cuba is not a priority as of now. However, this is likely to change a little bit over the next years, but President Biden will have to be very cautious of his reapproachment towards Cuba because, as Chuck mentioned before, this could have an impact within internal politics, both at the Democratic Party and in the U.S. in general. So it will be very interesting to see how the pandemic, the economic performance and the changes of government in, in the U.S. will play a role in the new consolidation of relations with Latin America. Alan, thank you very, very much for that. One last question before we let you go. It's been more than 60 years since the Castros have been in power in Cuba. Most Cubans have known no other leader than Fidel or Raul. When you've been in power that long, what's your retirement plan? I mean, in fairness, if I was Raul, I would be relieved because the country is in a very bad place. I would be like, yeah, I'm going to Baradero, get some sun, <laughs> drink some piñas coladas. Leaving the problems to someone else to deal with now. Exactly. They're not my problems anymore. Alan Zamayoa from our Mexico City office. Huge thanks for joining us. Charles, Claudine, thank you for having me in the podcast. Next time you find yourself in Miami, please have a cafecito and a medianoche somewhere on Calle Ocho for us. Will do. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how Control Risks is helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight Podcast is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. Many thanks to them. And for me, goodbye for now. And goodbye from me, 